for the number of the beast. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is six hundred three score and six. They said Halloween 2012, just about three steps from hell, three slices cross the juggle of vein. Before it fell, pull back the veil, that's where it gets thin. Feel that knife along the side of his ribs, then crawl inside his skin. Wearing asshole, non-believer like a bathrobe. Splash foes with acid, scar face, reverse of speech. In this verse, if you want to hear Satan, when we speaking back, we're sharpening up the swords and battle axes. Walking up the skies on the doomed planet as it spins off its axis, let the trumpets go on and blow. As the earthquakes and the dirt shakes down below. The ground splits and starts steaming UFOs coming through them stargates And earth gets flooded by abominations Revelations try to tell the people Battle with a God's patience Prophesy vision what they were seeing You gonna live on your knees Or die on your feet for what you believe in huh? The lights go down and shadows fall Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. Welcome to the borderland between light and dark, good and evil, truth and fiction. Welcome to the Outer Edge. I'm William Michael Mott. Here with me tonight is my good friend Tim Schwartz. And we are here to take you on a journey into both the real and the unreal, the fictional and the non-fictional. Tonight's a very special night, kind of a, a, a good topic to lead us into the month of October, the 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 month of strange things and even stranger than usual. How, how are you doing, Tim? <laughs> I like that intro. It's almost like uh, from Futurama, the scary door. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I forgot to mention Mothman. How's he doing? <laughs> uh, I, got, I got sick and tired of the son of a bitch and just opened the cage and let him go. About time. You probably flew yeah. right back to Seattle. Yeah, <laughs> he's gone. I don't care anymore. You know, he, he you know, uh, crapped all over the house. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, scratched up the furniture. You know, ate a couple of my cats. Yeah. So yeah. you know, yeah, he's kind of a nasty to, to me. Yeah, he is. He is. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I hear he likes moles. You know, he'll, he'll dig your yard up. You have to watch out. <laughs> Now but that's he, a new one. That's a new one to me. I hadn't heard that one before. They yeah, like moles. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> because you know, according to his his uh, his occasional handler, everybody's a mole. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, <laughs> you liked that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did like that. <laughs> All right, man. Here we are. We are. We are here tonight. It is October the fifth, where I am. October the sixth, where Tim is. And uh, see it that that fits the theme, the edge, because we're on the edge of one day and another, and we share it between us. That's pretty weird, man. And anyway, we're here and we're we're gonna have fun tonight. And uh, it's it's uh, it's a show I'm looking forward to. I'll put it that way. Oh so. yeah, well you know I always look forward to having uh, Walter on. Uh, you know he's just. Uh, uh, 
he's just always interesting to talk to. Oh yeah, and uh, he's got he's got great stories. I love his books. You know, and uh, and and, and uh, like like the rest of us, I know that that Walter has been accused of being a mole himself. So <laughs> <laughs> the only difference is that that Walter actually has been an intelligence agent. Yes, yes, yes. But, so that's cool. And you know, um, it, it, it's one of those things where, in case people out there don't know who we're talking about, we're talking about Walter Bosley. You should know if you're listening to the show. Um, and Walter's a really good guy. He's a very talented writer and researcher. He has background in military intelligence, counterterrorism, that kind of stuff. And he uh, writes both fiction and nonfiction, and he has a publishing company also. And actually, um, a few years ago, he put on a magazine called Lost Continent Library Magazine, LCL Magazine. And I was kind of the guy who helped him get it out because I basically – um, converted it all to PDF and, you know, all that type of stuff. And he published a bunch of my stories in it, and and, and we, we kind of – it was kind of like a labor of love type thing. It was a very unique magazine. It had some pretty risque stuff in it. But it was really pulp fiction, kind of in the original vein, the pulps. And uh, it, was, it was just a lot of fun to do. And um, hopefully he's going to bring that back, and we'll ask him about that tonight. So, because you know we're all we're we're into pulp fiction here. We we don't just like the weird stuff, like the the fourteen stuff and the mysterious and the conspiracies and the strange creatures and all that stuff. But we also like the fictional side. We like to uh, get back to our roots, which would be, I think, for me, would be things like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard and and all those cats. Well, now um, uh, you know. Speaking of that, now uh, uh, don't you uh, um, have some new releases of uh, um, uh, a new relief? Uh, uh, Pulp Wins? Yeah, yeah. I got a, uh, finally, back in print, a collection of my short fiction and verse and a whole bunch of artwork. It's been in uh, in limbo for a while. It was out as a Kindle, but it's finally come out in a new print edition, and um, a lot of the stories that are in it have been published in, in well, first in Walter's Magazine, but also in other, other magazines, uh, Planetary Stories, um, Startling Stories. And, and some others. And so, you know, it, it's a lot of adventure fiction, sort of uh, fast-paced um, pulp fiction in the original style of the pulps. Um, you know, there, there are a few modern things, more modern things in there, but most of it is, I mean, it's got everything from uh, sword and sorcery fiction, uh, fantasy fiction, uh, Lovecraftian-type horror tales, but also uh, some stuff with a Western flavor. It's got a lot of humor. It's got some humor stuff in it. Uh, it's got a bare, knuck- bare knuckle boxing story in the uh, in the uh, yeah, in the tradition of uh, some of Robert E. Howard's bare bare knuckle boxers, I guess. But in this uh, particular story, the uh, the Palooka, the protagonist, uh, the big dummy, he basically has to fight uh, um, uh, uh, basically something out of the Lovecraft universe, and it's pretty hilarious. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's got a lot of stuff like that in it. It's got a, you know some Western stuff, some a lot of strange, weird verse in the original um, um, vein of, mm-hmm. of uh, weird tales and, and that kind of stuff. So it's definitely uh, a unique publication. I'm really looking forward to getting it out. If people want to see it, they can go to monomorphic.com or to monomorphic.com slash blog, and there are links there to it. Now, it's on Amazon, but this month only, there's a link to CreateSpace to the page there. And if they go to 
if they go to the link that's that's at the blog or at the the regular website, and there's a code that they that people can use, and they they can get twenty percent off just for the month of October. So actually, there are three books, and the links are there. There are three three of my books which are in print right now, and uh, there's a twenty percent off discount just for the month of October if they use the checkout code that's at the website, and if they go to create space to do it. So there you go. All the links are there, monomorphic.com or monomorphic.com slash blog. But, uh, yeah, I'm excited about it because this is kind of one of those things that we're kind of doing in, in celebration of a number of things. The publisher's having an anniversary, and another very well-known writer of theirs is, is uh, he has a new book coming out. And then, of course, I'm going to be on Ancient Aliens right now, scheduled for the 31st and also for again oh, in oh, December. Cool. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, we're trying to – to just have a good October and, and and have a lot of fun and so far so good. Of course, this is only the fifth, so we'll see how it goes. The sixth week. <laughs> oh, that's that's fantastic. I mean, uh, you know, that's, that's just a lot of really exciting things. And uh, you know, uh, you may you may want to uh, remind our audience just exactly what uh, 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 Pulp Fiction is. You know? well, yeah, sure. It, you know, Pulp Fiction really. Back in the the twenties and the thirties, Pulp Fiction was kind of one of these things that everybody looked down on. It wasn't literature. Yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, Anne of the, of the Green Gables. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, basically, what Pulp Fiction is 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 the stuff that now pretty much has formed our entire pulp, pop culture. I mean, our, our pop culture started as pulp culture, really, mm-hmm. and it had everybody from uh, um, all the Science fiction started in pulp, in the pulps. Period. I mean, that's where it, that's where it started. Right. Even Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, in his earliest stuff, he was writing for Argosy and and magazines like that. And uh, so you know, but it, there was this whole renaissance of pulp fiction and pulp magazines, weird tales, fantastic stories, um, uh, amazing stories, all these types of things. And it lasted, I guess, for about. It is heyday for about 35 years or so, and then it kind of got a little bit, you know, less popular in the in the 40s and the 50s, or in the 50s especially. But that's because paperbacks started coming out, and and, and there was there were other things, television, this new invention, and the movies, and 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 the pulps kind of had a scandalous um, reputation. You know, they there was a lot of uh, sexual innuendo sometimes outright descriptions of things there was uh, you know, a lot of violence a lot of gore and you know it had such lowbrow stuff as uh, uh um, things like uh people who went on adventures and you know everything from westerns to swordsmen to whatever i mean it, it was just anything you can imagine in that scandalous realm um <laughs> the pulps covered it and and so you know Certain aspects of society looks down their long noses at the pulps, but uh, the pulps have survived because everything now that that everybody thinks is so cool and all the these movies that come out, these action adventure movies and these uh, science fiction tales and horror movies and all this stuff, it all has its roots in pulp fiction because that's where that stuff originally really made its heyday. It really was brought out to the public in in the most expansive form. Back during the the era of the pulps, right, right. Well, and of course, I mean, as we all know, I mean, our one of our our more most favorite subjects to talk about the you know the whole shaver experience. Yep, uh, got its start in the uh, uh, pulp 
uh, Pulp Fiction. That's right. Uh, that's right. Uh, yep. And Amazing Stories. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, and yeah, and that. you know, and so Ray Palmer was the was the editor of Amazing Stories, and he he took Shaver's manuscript, his letter, actually out of a trash bin. <laughs> and uh, so somebody had just tossed it as, as some kind of mad ramblings. And he said, hey, I could turn this into a story. And he basically ghost wrote most of it into a pulp sci-fi tale. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where um, so many things have come from the pulps like that. Um, right. You know, if it, if it weren't for the Shaver mystery, then Ray Palmer wouldn't have gone on to – Get fired from Amazing Stories <laughs> eventually, and, yeah. and and then come out with things like UFO. What was it? Uh, Flying Saucer, Flying Saucer Flying magazine. Saucer. Well, Fate, Fate magazine, Fate yeah. magazine. Yeah, and just hope Mystic magazine. Mystic. So you know, it, it's it's one of these things where it just kind of touched everything. I mean, Tarzan of the Apes is is kind of a, a very very early pulp character. Sure. Um, John Carter of Mars. Um, you know, of course, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Sumerian, actually, would have been, would have been his actual title. Um, Cole the Conqueror, all these characters that people know about now just from crappy, sappy movies or um, comic <laughs> books, they don't realize a lot of people that those stories actually were much well, were much better written and were very well written, but they originally, that these characters all came from the pulps. And, uh, um, you know, there's right. a whole, universe out there of literature that p- people are, are still rediscovering today. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and the thing about it is, is that, you know, a lot of uh, writers that, that we consider, you know, like uh, uh, classic literary writers uh, got their start or actually, I mean, you know, a, a lot of their, uh, 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 a lot of their tales right. uh, that we consider classics today got their start as serialized uh, versions in uh, you know their day of uh, you know what would be their equivalent of a, a pulp, uh, pulp that's fiction. Right. I mean, that's totally right. like I think Charles uh, Charles Dixon, Dick uh, Dickens, yeah. yeah, yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, going back uh, further, but you know before the actual heyday of the pulse, but yeah, these these serial types, think that the the penny dreadfuls and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, were, what Ed- were, Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah. Exactly. You know, I mean, that's that's some excellent examples of. I mean, you know, I mean, we we look at those now as, I mean, oh my gosh, these are just you know classic literary, you know, they're genius, and uh, but uh, yep. yeah, some you know some of these other people who you know may maybe a little bit more closer to you know to, to our era have largely been forgotten because they right. wrote. Oh God forbid, you know, they they wrote for the you know, pulp the magazines. Pulp. Yeah. Well, you know, they they called them pulp because they were printed on cheap pulp paper. Right. Um, and and the reason was because this was during a large a, a large part of the pulp era was during the depression, right before and right after the depression. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they were produced cheaply and it was the only entertainment some people could afford. Mm-hmm. You know, they would go buy a pulp magazine and there's, you know, two weeks reading for some of these people, you know, or they'd be full of stories and they pass them around and trade them and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it was a really big industry for a while um, because, it, you know, because it was a very cheap form of, of entertainment. But that doesn't mean they weren't well written. I mean, H.P. Lovecraft got started in the pulps, Clark right. Ashton Smith, um, any number of really great mm-hmm. writers that, you know, nowadays are famous icons in their various uh, subgenres. They got started in the pulp. A lot of a lot of Western runners of westerns. I believe Zane Gray got started doing uh, pulps. Oh yeah, yeah. So you know, there, there's a lot of this stuff that that it, it's a very American 
in its own way, a very American uh, form of, of literature. Because, I mean, you, you talked about Dickens and stuff, but you know, Dickens Dickens wrote some good material, but it wasn't exactly you know um, Tarzan of the Apes or <laughs> you know, it wasn't exactly. Well, it, I started saying his day it was. You know. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you know, it, it took it took the American experience to kind of take yes. it and put the blood and the the gore and the the. The gumption in it, I guess you could say, right, because uh, right. that's just what we do, unfortunately. Or fortunately, well, you, you know, I mean, uh, even you know, when I was a kid and a you know up up to a teenager, I mean, they were still printing magazines, you know, newsstand magazines in that, um, you know, using that kind of paper, right? Uh, you know, usually, you know, uh, adventure magazines, like you said, Argosy and Saga and things like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, oh, a uh, modern detective. I wish I had know. all the ones I used to have when I was a young man. Uh, oh, I know, I know. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, uh, people just don't, I mean, they, they don't, they don't realize what, the, what they lost when, you know, basically, you know, these cheap magazines, yeah, you know, yeah. went went to the wayside. I mean, you know, now all the magazines that you know you see at uh, you know, say like Walmart and stores like that, which is the practically anymore the only access that uh, that you can get for a newsstand magazine. I mean, they're all that slick paper, right? Um, and uh, probably what ninety five percent of the content is advertising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and you know, the thing is that that magazines. Are, I mean, if I go to the store, what go to Walmart or someplace where they actually have a magazine rack, which you don't find very much anymore. Even you know, even in some bookstores, the magazine racks aren't that big. And, and you go in and you look at the magazines. And it's like you said; it's just like they're just slick packaging for ads. Mm-hmm. The it, it seems like for most of these magazines today. That's all you're getting is is presentation, but the content is just not there. Um, maybe it's just me, but that that's the way I see it. It's like, and they want seven, eight dollars for a magazine? Are you oh, kidding? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. You know. Um, oh, and, and and I tell you something. One of the one of the things that really pisses me off about uh, a lot of these magazines anymore is that they'll go and they'll put their the 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 print. They'll put their text. Over some kind of very loud, garish photograph or illustration, and it's almost yeah. impossible to read. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. But you know, I they just they, hate call, that. they call that graphic design these days. Oh, I hate you know, that. When I when I was uh, you know I, I was a commercial artist for a long time, an art director and a creative director and all that stuff, and I started working for a while at a university, and I saw all these people that had graphic design degrees that I was working with and I had people like them working for me, you know, in other, uh, in other situations. And they had this idea of, of doing that, like cramming the text together with like completely screwing up the, what's called the letting on the text and, and, and floating their fonts in weird ways. And they, they thought it was creative. No, most of the time it was just a jumbled mess. It was, it was, uh, it was not creative. It was it was mainly spastic. I guess would be a good ta- a good term for it. And you still see that with some magazines, especially magazines that think they're being real artistic and arty. And I don't mean that in the in the I mean that in the sense of like, oh look how arty we are, look how creative wow. we are. And no, you're not. I mean, th- there are certain things you should you should do in order to make your material um, not just legible, but make it um, compelling. You know, you, you, you want it to be compelling. You don't want it to be one of these things where it's so disjointed that it just drags the eye all over the place. 
because you're trying to, to uh, th- the whole point is to get people to read the text. <laughs> Unless it's a photography magazine, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but when your when, but when your text is like you said, it's like you know crawling off the page and twisted sideways and all this stuff that that they seem to think is is good graphic design. It's not good graphic design. It's crap. No. So you know that's just my professional opinion. So that's right. Quit showing off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We want to read it, yeah. Well, you have Quark Express. Well, I like the way you rotated that text. How about making it legible? (laughs) Yeah, concept, huh? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But anyway, this is going to be a good show tonight. We're talking to a guy who is a publisher. He's publishing books. And by the way, Walter's also a very good uh, Photoshop artist. He's very good at uh, putting together. I think he does most of his own cover art for his books and stuff like that. So... uh, yeah, he's real good. He did a lot of the, or most of the graphics in the in the Lost Continent Library. I did some for him, and he did some of them. He did most of them probably because he had a vision that he wanted to bring a bring across. And that magazine, it, I guess it only went for like fourteen, fifteen issues, something like that. It was, yeah. yeah, and it was all in PDF. But it was surprising how popular it was because I actually had he had he would put the links up, but they were actually hosted off of my, um, off of my side. In a directory there, and the downloads I would get were just unbelievable. I mean, right. oh yeah, oh yeah, because it was free. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, if people pay for stuff to pay for something, you know. But uh, I think he's going to go with a with a with a paying format next time because it was very popular, and uh, we, he got he has some really good writers, and I have a feeling that that he may be bringing that back. Well, we'll have to ask him when he comes on. You know, I mean, if and, and I, I tell you, if if. If it does come back, I'd sure love to try to come up with something to contribute for that. But you know, yeah, fiction, that would be great. Oh, fiction is so hard. You know, I mean, yeah, just, you know, it fiction, just really is. You take, you know, that's that's the thing people don't understand. You know, if you if you're an artist and you, and you paint and you draw, yeah, that's time consuming, and you do have to concentrate. But if you're also if you write, nothing requires as much concentration. As writing, mm-hmm. and then if you're writing fiction, you really yeah. need to close your door and be left alone for a while, because otherwise, it, it's, you know, you can't you can't have that going on and people constantly interrupting you and bugging you because it's just not going to happen. You, it, it requires more concentration than just about anything I've ever done. So, um, you know, I'm hoping to, to do a little more fiction myself pretty soon. But you know, I mean, uh, just you know, just considering the the amount of exposition that you have to you know put right. in. Right. <laughs> here's something people don't like to hear, and this is this is funny. I always thought this was very funny. Okay. Someone once once asked uh, J.R.R. Tolkien because you know Tolkien, as people say, Tolkien is like this god, this icon to people who read fantasy. You know, I personally love The Hobbit, and I like The Silmarillion. Lord of Rings, I read it twice, and that just about put me to sleep both times. Um, the, the third time I read about Tom Bombadil's uh, magical cure for wart removal or whatever it was, it just, it, you know, it, it's just like, come on, let's get to the, get to the story. Because, you know, as a, as, a, as a writer of adventure fiction, to me, the worst thing you could do is waste the reader's time. Don't waste the reader's time. I don't care how many damn flowers and what... There are in Middle Earth and what their names are and all this crap. <laughs> it's crap, okay? Get to the story. Don't waste my time with that crap, okay? Hmm. And, but someone once asked Tolkien, they said, uh, you know, did you ever read, uh, 
Robert E. Howard, and he admitted that he had read Weird Tales. Really? Yes, and that he had read Robert E. Howard. And then you think about it, Howard wrote well before Tolkien did. Right. And he, he was familiar with the character of Conan and, and all this type of stuff, and he kind of snorted about it and looked down his nose. But you think about it, in, in uh, The Tower of the Elephant, one of the first Conan stories, maybe the first one. No, the first one was The Phoenix on the Sword, but it was still an early story. In The Tower of the Elephant, Conan fights a giant spider. Mm-hmm. Giant spiders are a major part of Tolkien's right, mythos. Right. And there are a lot of things like that. If Things that are in Howard in really raw, uh, um, visceral form, you know, you know, get down to it, don't waste my time form. And there, you, you can see echoes of that stuff in, uh, in, in the Middle Earth stuff. But again, you know, you have to, like, Drink several cups of coffee to get to it. <laughs> sorry, sorry, uh, Tolkien fans. You know, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think The Hobbit was a good book because it was so fast paced. It didn't yeah. waste people's time. Um, right. But you know, and, and you know, I got really tired of hearing about how how uh, noble and beautiful and wonderful the elves were. It's like, my God, just get over it. You know, <laughs> I'm well, sorry. You know, um, Stephen Stephen King is is guilty of that a lot of times too, and uh, you know I mean yeah, there, yeah. I, I I love a lot of Stephen King's books, but there there are some where it's just like oh yeah I know oh yeah. my gosh <laughs> but you know you know I did I did really like I still think the best thing he's ever done was the Dark Tower stuff, but he did that a little bit in there too. But at least there was mm-hmm. there was some stuff going on, you know talking choo choo trains that kind of stuff. Nah, I don't like that too much. But still, I mean he. Uh, you know, he, he has his good stuff. He has the best stuff. But I guess I could be saying about anybody that writes. So, you know, um, <laughs> uh, that's 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 just the point, though. I mean, you know, in order to be able to uh, um, to write good fiction, I mean, you know, you got to have that. Uh, you have to have that mind for detail. And, right, right, and, and the ability to carry that that story forwards without bogging your reader down to the point exactly. where they're just like, you know, screw this. I'm going to go watch Dancing with the Stars. You know? <laughs> oh, my God, no. Sacrilege. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's really similar to the, what we've talked about on here before, which is that, you know, good nonfiction is the same way. You shouldn't bore people with overwhelming garbage. Just, you know, present your facts and do your research and that kind of thing. But if you write nonfiction – you generally, you know, especially the kind of stuff you and I write, okay, it lend, right. that that material lends itself well to to uh, also being sort of incorporated into fiction. So that's one thing I like about Walter is that Walter, you know, he, he's in, he's got a foot in both worlds. He does both the fiction and the nonfiction. He's one of the best researchers around, as far as I'm concerned. He really because uh, that's what he does. He's he's an investigator, so his research is impeccable. And so then when he writes his fiction, you'll find, you know, you'll find, uh, smatterings or, or, or influence of the, of the nonfiction and the research and the factual world in the, uh, in the, in the fictional worlds that he, he weaves so well. Mm-hmm. Well, um, before we go to Walter, I just want to remind everyone that you are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN radio network. And if you want to call us tonight and uh, ask Walter some uh, some questions, we encourage you to do so by calling us at 786-245-8127. You can also like us on uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook, The Outer Edge Radio. Um, 
the, you can also chat in our chat room during the show at uh, psn-radio.com. And um, that's uh, that's about it for that. So what do you say, Mike, that we go to our break here? And when we come back, we'll have Walter. And he'll be talking about his uh, latest book is, uh, um, uh, what is it, Secret Missions? He's got the two Hedden books. He's got a, yeah. Right. Go ahead. Two, yeah. one, one, one fiction, one nonfiction. So this should yeah. be a lot of fun. Should be a lot right. of fun. Okay, so let's uh, let's go to our break, and when we come back, we'll have Walter uh, Bosley on the Outer Edge. So please stay tuned. Of the panel, you lousy corksuckers! You have violated my fargan rights. This Samanambatching country was founded so that the liberties of common patriotic citizens like me could not be taken away by a bunch of Fargan ice holes like yourselves. Thank you very much. Remember, Future Theater could be heard every Monday night at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m. Eastern, with your host, Bill, that's me and Nancy. Hi, Karumba. Burns, and we are broadcasting live right here on PSN Radio. Breaking the walls down. This is radio. This is what people want. To download the podcast, make sure you go to www.futuretheater.com. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with Key Information Solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let Key Information Solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954 That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Mental disorders are common in the United States and internationally. An estimate 26.2% of Americans ages 18 and older suffer from some sort of mental illness. Now, this figure translates to 57.7 million people who suffer from some sort of mental breakdown. If you find yourself laying in bed on a Sunday night hearing voices while you're trying to sleep, well, it might not be that demonic being from another dimension trying to kill you where you sleep. It might just be your mental illness starting to kick in. So if you're out of meds for the night, then I have just the thing. Come listen to my show, The Jackal's Head. You can check out our Listen Live page only on www.psn-radio.com. See you there. This ad has been paid for by The Jackal's Head and the War on Terror. War. It's fantastic. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to the Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz with Mike Motts, 
and of course our very special guest, Walter Bosley. Walter, how you doing tonight? Pretty good. How you guys doing? Good. We're doing fantastic. Thank you very much for being with us again tonight. Well, we love it. Great love I having you on. <laughs> yes, it's always good to be here. I enjoy it. I uh, I read your pulp fiction book and then i i got started on the other one but i didn't finish it yet so just letting you know <laughs> but uh yeah it was good both of them were good oh, what's, uh, thank what's, you. what's 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 the name of his uh, uh the fiction book mike it's called the house of car and i love the cover of that by the way walter did you do that one uh yes i did from a composite of um oh my gosh uh, maybe during the during the break I'll pull up the names of the artists but um it was uh composite of old pinup art from the 30s or 40s plus a uh, cover art of course from a pulp magazine yeah uh, it's great looking i mean it it looks almost like you know a fu manchu type of uh oh thank story you thank you <laughs> <laughs> you guys might like the next one too. Cool. So you're you're hard at work on both fiction and nonfiction again. What's that? I say you're hard at work on both fiction and nonfiction again. I, I tell you, I have been uh, here here lately. I'm really enjoying writing the fiction again. It's been a few years since the time travel novel came out, and that was uh, kind of a you know, a side product of the whole empire of the wheel milieu and experience. And so these new works of fiction, um, I actually wrote, Oh, a couple of them. I wrote way back in 2005 rough drafts and another one or two were in 2010 and, uh, several other ones have been written since 2012. So I've, I've kind of been working on the fiction uh, all along, but I just wasn't putting it out there. I wasn't focusing as much on it because, as you know, the nonfiction is quite, um, you know, could be heavy stuff and required a lot of attention. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and it, it's interesting to me, like, of course, you and I have been friends for, God, how long now? Fifteen years at least. At least, well, I've been I've been looking at your stuff, um, and I think we started communicating after I read the uh, Caves Cavern Dwellers yeah, book, yeah. I believe. Yeah, yeah, that was like gosh, two thousand probably year two thousand. I know, I know, that's amazing. So, yeah, but the thing is that that you know the fiction and the nonfiction definitely overlap, and I, I'm by now I'm I'm fairly familiar with your work, and so. You know, when I when I when I read your fiction, of course, I see uh, hints of your nonfiction, and then when, of course, when I read your nonfiction, I see things that I know are going to somehow inform or 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 color your fiction. Does that make sense? Oh, it sure does. Absolutely. the The current pulp novel I'm working on is actually going to be the first work that does not reflect directly. The um, Empire of the Wheel research, as you know, House of Ka has a has the character Cora Stanton. Right. Um, if you know, for those who haven't read it, there's a little tidbit. But uh, the new one, the new one is the first thing that <laughs> doesn't refer to it, the Empire of the Wheel stuff, in any way. 
Hmm. Right. Cool. And, and you know, the thing is that uh, you've kind of been doing this for a while now. I mean, you've, you've danced around it. You had the, uh, what was it, Somewhere in Time? Is that what it was called? Uh, I Will See You in Time. I Will See You in Time. And that kind of had elements of your other nonfiction thing about ley lines and in Disney World, Keys, Keys to the Kingdom. Um, oh, ab- absolutely. Um, I Will See You in Time is a novel uh, mostly inspired by the Latitude 33 Key to the Kingdom research plus right. the Empire of the Wheel um, investigation. The first book, of course, because I didn't know that she was at a place you know, when I wrote the time travel novel. That, that didn't right. come until... I was researching for Empire of the Wheel too. Right. Well, it makes you, it makes you want to go back though and and uh, do a sequel. Now, you know, considering all the other stuff that uh, uh, you've discovered with the other two uh, books after the first one, I mean, I'd, I'd love because you know I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, I'll, I'll See You in Time. I mean, that's an excellent book. Well, thank you. Oh, thank yeah. you. And yeah. I would just I, I would love to see the other elements. Uh, you know, Edda plays the uh, uh, the flying machines. Uh, you know, everything yeah, the, that the that, that you. Oh my gosh! I mean, that would just be so great. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be well, great. Cool. You know, the um the 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 time travel novel. I will see you in time. Actually, has um an allusion to uh what I write about in the nonfiction book we're going to talk about tonight. Juan Cabrillo and the whole mystery surrounding his. Uh, you know, supposed death and disappearance. Uh, Juan Cabrillo's, if you recall, is in I Will See You in Time because the uh, main character was kind of a reincarnation of him, uh, right. if, you, if you read that properly. So it, it it is kind of interesting how I was writing about... I have said before that the um, secret missions, the uh, hidden legacy of old California, um, is based on data that had been turning up in my Empire of the Wheel research since 2007, and that is reflected in the time travel novel as well. So really, the time travel novel is um, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom, Empire of the Wheel, Volume 1, and this book, Secret Missions, um, kind of inspired by those three, when you think about right. it. Well, it's pretty cool because, I mean, if, if you look at, uh, I mean, I don't know how much you well. You've you've talked on the show before about how you how you're a Freemason. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, of course, everybody's going to go crazy now because people are stupid. But anyway. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. So so you know, a lot of your stuff has a lot of the secret society stuff, various secret societies, um, mm-hmm. and I think with secret missions, you kind of look at how these secret societies different working with different empires and different uh, agendas how they were kind of in competition for North America oh certainly um, the the case that I make you know what let's uh, let's jump into secret missions because you know you okay. brought up you know a good uh, opportunity to do that um, the the basic premise of secret missions is that Juan Cabrillo was selected by the Knights Templar to be the custodian of the lost sword of Joan of Arc. Right. Um, that was being moved from one secret vault to the next. Right. Due to its nature, its very powerful nature. 
And well, let, and, let's let's also say again for the listeners, the book you're talking about now, Secret Missions, is not fiction. It's not that's right. fiction. It's, a, it's, it's investigative it, research that you've done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. In this book, I I propose the solution to the mystery of Juan Cabrillo, the mystery of his birth and his true identity. Um, I propose, uh, you know, a, a solution to the mystery of his his death. Um, I do not think he died, as was reported, and the book goes into that. Um, it also uh, presents the association that he would have had by birth to the Knights Templar and how all of this is associated with the relic, the, the, the lost sword of Joan of Arc. Right. And you're absolutely right. This is my most recent nonfiction book, and this is um, based on evidence that has presented itself to me um, as a side product during the Empire of the Will investigation since late 2007, um, seven years ago now. So right. uh, Secret Missions is essentially the product of seven years of research and analysis. Hmm. Very cool. Well, now, I almost I... didn't write it, so um, I, I, I decided that, you know, that it was time to write this this uh, book and reveal this theory I have, and uh, specifically regarding uh, Joan of Arc's lost sword. It's a very interesting uh, episode in history. Well, that's that's what I wanted to ask you about, uh, Walter. Is, uh, okay, first of all, um, I didn't know that Joan of Arc had a sword, and second, I didn't know that there was a sword that was lost. Do you want to go into you that? You know what? No. Neither did I until I started. Uh, Joan of Arc, Joan of Arc symbolism was uh, uh, showing up in the research um, on other things, and Joan of Arc historical allusions were showing up. Right. And why did what I learned? I didn't discover this. It's there in the history. Um, what I learned was that when she was captured, she did not have this particular sword with her. Um, she was carrying some lesser sword. And during her tribunal, the inquisitors seemed most keenly interested in where that sword was, the special sword. Now, here's the interesting thing. This, if, if you're not familiar with the story of Joan of Arc, I refer everybody just, you know, go check out Wikipedia or go to the library, check out her story. But basically, Joan of Arc was, um, you know, this great leader of her people in France. Um, during the early 15th century. Yeah. And, um, she reportedly, you know, was led by three saints and she would hear their voices. And one of those saints was our good friend, St. Catherine of Alexandria, who, wow. um, I'm pretty sure uh, I've, I've presented my proof that St. Catherine of Alexandria was actually the goddess Hecate, and that is all detailed in Empire of the Wheel 1 um, for anyone interested. So uh, so basically, one of Joan of Arc's saints that she was guided by was right. Hecate, and Hecate led her to the church of Fireboise, I believe it's pronounced, to go retrieve the sword 
that was the sword of Charles Martel, which is another part of the story. Right, Charlemagne, Charlemagne, for those who don't know, yeah. Well, Charlemagne's... um, Grandson or... uh, Grandfather, I think. Was his grandfather? Yeah, Martel was not a king, he was a... He was a prince anyway. Yeah, he, he's in the Charlemagne bloodline there. Yeah. And anyway, Joan cleaned up this sword and carried it into all her battles. Now, um, remember, she would just use it to uh, uh, beat on somebody. <laughs> um, she, she pretty much carried her banner. But whenever she carried the sword, um, she was always victorious, um, you know, invincible, right. undefeated and all this stuff. And this sword became well known especially to her enemies. And when she was finally captured, and the uh, tribunal that was being controlled by the English, of course, they were the ones who had captured her and were the most interested in uh, stopping her, uh, they were very deeply interested in this particular sword. But when she was captured, she didn't have that sword, of course. And when they pressed her, she said she had, uh, she didn't know. She'd given all her belongings to her brothers and they had, you know, whatever they had done with it, she didn't know. Hmm. So uh, I thought, wow, that's, that's a pretty fascinating story. And the book uh, goes into, um, (laughs) the details of, uh, you know, the history of Joan's sword, the, its right. connection to Charles Martel. And then uh, it, it presents the interesting um, parallels between this sword, Charles Martel's sword, and the famous sword, Excalibur. And exactly. that is really where Secret Missions gets interesting as far as the relic is concerned. Well, you know, it's interesting because this sword, like so many mythical swords, which actually have historical, um, possibly historical reality, it had qualities that were, even at the time, were were not normal for for the steel of the time, for the the sword craft at the time, that kind of thing. For instance, this thing would have been buried for hundreds of years by the time Joan of Arc recovered it from the earth, as as she said. Right. And they just... They just rubbed it down real well, and the rust just fell off of it, and the blade was just like new. Yes. And, you know, most swords of that time would have rusted into a chunk of, you know, of just junk by that time. Um, Right. It was about 700 years. Yeah. Yeah. It was very unusual that the sword would have been in that kind of condition. Um, And then, of course, it supposedly had the ability to, to cut through things you know, with, uh, had, a, had a far uh, greater um, strength and, and, and edge and edge retention and all that kind of stuff. So it's very, very strange. Had the ability to especially cut through Englishmen, huh? Yeah, that too. But yeah, I mean, if, you, if you think about it, if the English thought that if they had their own reasons to believe that, that this sword was actually Excalibur or Caliburn, as they used to call it, if they thought it was actually that, that ancient British sword, then they sure would have wanted it back. Yes, they sure would have. They absolutely. And um, I argue that, uh, and I present this in the book as to why I think this, I argue that Joan's brothers, or at least one of her brothers, um, actually passed the sword on to the already underground Knights Templar. Hmm. And the Knights Templar brought it to 
the Americas, which at the time I argue is others before me and others, you know, out there in the world right now are arguing, um, right. had been, you know, coming to for um, quite a while. Right. And um, they brought the sword to the Americas and they vaulted it. And then as they moved across the continent to keep their vaults in, um, oh, more out of the way places from the population as the population grew, um, right. the sword was moved with the vault, of course. The sword was pretty much moved across North America. The book goes into the other vault locations that um, I think I've found based on my research that I at least propose based on the evidence. Right. And that leads into how it ended up in California. And then, of course, we come to the Juan Cabrillo part of the mystery. Well, you know, another thing that, that lends credence to this is that you know, and this goes to the Knights Templar coming to North America. Mm-hmm. Before the Knights Templar came to North America, there's plenty of evidence now that the Irish came here. Irish sure. monks probably at first. Um, the Welsh came here. Yeah, um, the Chinese. The, the, but but in terms of the British Isles, the Scots, of course, they mm-hmm. knew what the, what the Welsh and the, and, the, and the Irish knew about it. And this goes to them all being enemies of the English. So, right. You know Sinclair and and his bunch. They were you know they were the original Knights Templars who started Freemasonry, and you know it, it stands to reason that at that time that they would have helped the French hide the sword from the English because the English were their enemies as much as the Catholic Church was. Right, and I would argue that the the uh, Templar Knights involved in this. Um, their view was probably that this, if this item was as described, and let, let's say, let's suppose for a moment that Joan's sword, you know, was Charles Martel's sword and, and that was Excalibur, um, this would have been uh, an item of powerful technology beyond the understanding of most people at that time. We're talking about an, uh, the, the kind of technology that reaches back to that remote um, alternative, you know, to mainstream history that uh, yeah. that argues that there was advanced an advanced civilization sure. a long, long time ago. Now, remember the other thing that the book proposes is if this is not the exact same sword, it was of what I call the Excalibur type, and basically, um, it, whatever, whichever actual sword it was, um, whether the Excalibur or not, it still represented. This advanced technology, and I would argue right. that the Knights Templar involved in vaulting it just didn't want it to fall into, um, you know, the, the hands of the English crown. And right. uh, for that matter, you know, they had reasons to keep it out of the hands of the the, the French crown too. Sure. You know? Well, if you look uh, at what you're talking about with the ancient civilization, I mean, you have uh, the legends, of course, of the Golden Age, and of course the, the earlier civilizations, which were so advanced. The, the civilizations of gods and demigods, basically, and interacting with right. men. But we're talking about advanced civilizations that were destroyed. And when you look at the myths and legends of Northern Europe, in particular, and Northern and Western Europe, you'll find these legends of these swords, these powerful swords, that are generally hidden away in caves and grottos, and and sometimes even in in uh, subs. Uh, sub, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? 
submerged areas underwater. Mm-hmm. For instance, the Lady of the Lake. You know, Lady she has lake, that. Right. Yeah, she has that sword of power, Exc- uh, Excalibur. And she, it, well, she has a sword, and it's some people say some myths is Excalibur, some it's another one, but some say that she took the sword into her safekeeping and then she brought it back. You know, there, there are several swords of power in that whole legend cycle. But she has a, a sword of power, and she has it down in the lake. And then you have the legend right. of, of Beowulf. And when Beowulf mm-hmm. dives into the the lake to confront and kill Grendel's mother, he takes with him a regular sword that's given to him by another uh, uh, Norseman, basically a Dane. And they mm-hmm. trade swords, and he takes the sword down into the into the uh, into the bog, and mm-hmm. down to the cave. And his sword is ineffective. It's, it's ineffectual against uh, Grendel's mother because she's not human. She's something, you know, uh, a proto-human, non-human, uh, Nephilim, whatever she is. And so his his regular sword doesn't have much effect against her. But while he's down there, he finds a sword or he comes into contact with a sword that it says is from an earlier age, an age of mightier men, of, of giants and, and this kind of thing. And this is the sword that he takes, which is effective in killing her. So it's, again, it's, it's a higher level of technology. And so you had this idea that all around, uh, Europe in particular, there are these buried relic weapons from an earlier age, which are, like you say, they're, they're a higher, level of well, uh, technological advancement it's also interesting that you bring that up because in in, in my book I, I get into a little bit of the elements the metallurgy of uh the sword and um specifically i i get into these 12 particular elements when combined would have made a sword that uh conducted electromagnetism that shined would shine very brightly. Would, would basically do all the things described of Excalibur, right. and I found it uh, from the uh, geological and metallurgical perspective to be really quite fascinating when you're talking about a lost technology. And the book gets into that. And, and the book gets into. Um, the very interesting symbolism to be found when talking about these 12 specific elements and you get into symbol, uh, the symbolism of the round table. You get right. into Arthurian legend and Excalibur and, and I began to wonder, wait a minute, okay, could the, cause there are 12 chairs around the round table, right? And the king at the top, um, right. he wields Excalibur. So I, I, really dug deep, and I'm still digging for this, um, to find the evidence that would show that the the knights, the, the 12 knights of the round table, how and how they might symbolize these special 12 medals, ormies they're called, O-R-M-E, right. ormies. Right. And well, um, the, the book gets into all that. And it's, I'm, it's, I'm trying to remember, I mean, I'm, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it seems like Charles Martel had a group of knights too. And, you know, after he, I think he, he won a big victory at Tours or something. And he yeah, took he the pretty sword. much sent the uh, Saracen the, army running. Right. <laughs> and so he, he took the sword. I have to he, say, through, greatly through some trickery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, he, he basically hid the sword um, after that. And that kind of, again, reminds you of this whole idea about it's a, such a powerful weapon that, 
you know, he, I think he hit it and said, it, you know, the next the next great defender of France so will he, have he it. Wanted, he wanted to return the sword to where he got it from, God, essentially, and he right. very specifically, he very specifically um, returned it to to behind the altar of this church of Firebois, and it's the church of St. Catherine of Alexandria, essentially. There's our St. Catherine again, our Hecate. Um, yeah. So he, he now I want you to think about something. It's Hecate in her St. Catherine mask who is uh, guiding and mentoring Joan of Arc. It is uh, Hecate in her St. Catherine mask to whom Martel returns the sword. We have a lady connected with the sword who gives it and receives it. Now, who do you think the Lady of the Lake was? Yeah, I, I saw you going, much, that, going there. I yeah. pretty much state that in the book that it has to be considered. And, Mike, I think you begin to understand why and how I have come to um, have a, what's the word for it, evolved opinion of uh, the lady. Um, because the, the more you look, the deeper you, you dig on that, on her, the more, um, the more you see where some folks have been greatly misguided as to her nature. Uh, well, I, I think that you have to ask yourself too: is how many how many different um, persons, personalities, entities are going by the same name? I mean, you don't you don't know. I mean, it's no different than people who say they're talking to God, but what they're actually talking to is somebody that tells them to go out and whack everybody in the office. So, well, you know. the the Hecate the Hecate personality is pretty consistent. But what it is, is you, you bring up a good point. You have to consider your source. I mean, yeah. think of all the people that tell them that, you know, God, that say God told them to do this horrible thing. And yeah, you can exactly. pretty much guess that they interpreted something wrong, that there's no way that God, so to speak, told them to do that. Or so somebody I, or something lied to them. <laughs> well, that, yeah, so that can go. happen. But yeah. um, I, uh, you know... It's, it's, it's just a very, it's a very interesting thing that it would, would be a discussion for 10 shows before we could yeah. even, before I, yeah. before I could even clarify. Well, here's another thing too. I mean, when you look at this from, uh, the perspective of, of, you know, what happened with, with Martel saving the sword for, for John or whoever his, his, uh, next, def- the next defender was, would be, it's similar to what, sort of supposedly happened with Arthur, you know. There are different stories about where the sword ended up. You know, some people say it went sure. back to the Lady in the Lake. Some people say he's buried with it um, in, in Avalon or under Glastonbury Tour or whatever. You know, all these different legends about, but that the, the overall message is that he will return with the sword when England needs him, that kind of thing. So, right. you know, it, it's, it's the same kind of a thing. And, um, it's just interesting because going all the way back, you'll find these these weapons weapons of of you know technological advancement in your not just European lore, but also you know in India, in the in the Puranas and the and and all these ancient legends all over the all over the world. You'll find similar types of of uh, ideas, right? Even in Japan, actually. Oh sure, sure, and this is why I bring up the 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 uh, in the book the this idea that this sword in this particular case was of a type. In other words, you know, in other words, Arthur had his Excalibur, Martel had his sword, and Joan had had Martel's sword, 
and that you know these not necessarily uh, did they have to be the same exact sword but i think they were of the same type right the same method of construction with the same results and well, that's why the templars said let's you know the the english are hot and heavy to get their hands on this stuff we can't allow that let's take it across the water and you know right. the, the new world is still unknown for now let's get it over there so you know they i think that jones sword had five crosses etched on it somewhere what do you think that symbolized well as um the, the gentleman who greatly educated me his whose whose work um educated me um he uh he's a sword maker sword collector and he points out that the crosses actually show up in the metal as it's worked when you do a particular um, Damascus steel type of sword. Hmm. And uh, it could just have been um, uh, the, 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 what's the word for it, the texture of the steel right. left over. However, oh, yeah. however, however, my book goes into an interesting little fact is that there were words on um, – uh, Joan, there might have been words on Joan's sword and that Excalibur had words and the book analyzes what those words were and here's what's interesting um, I believe in French um, it would have been five words three on one side two on the other so it, the, the book goes into the greater detail on that um, mm-hmm. arguing for Joan's sword to be Excalibur or an Excalibur type and it says interesting things like "carry me away," and and it, it's it it's really really compelling stuff that that I found, and um, I, I think I've presented it um, in a pretty interesting framework. I hope anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So far, so good, man. Yeah, it's uh, I, I'm really excited about the what I what I discovered about Juan Cabrillo. And um, even if you don't care for the rest of the book, anyone interested in the history of the Age of Discovery or the history of the state of California, um, and, and Juan Cabrillo in particular, here, here's here's what I didn't know before I started researching all this stuff seven years ago, was that um, Juan Cabrillo's birthplace and, and everything about him prior to him being about 18 or 19 years old is completely unknown. There's no documentation. There's nothing. He just shows up in history at around 19 years old in the army of Narvaez sent to arrest Cortez. Now, for years, uh, historians have said he's, he's Portuguese. No, he's Spanish. No, he's Portuguese. No, he's Spanish. And, and for some reason, a lot of historians and others would come, including the U.S. government, and this is interesting, they officially settled on he's Portuguese. And this right. is in spite of historians going to Portugal and finding neither a village nor any record or any blood relative whatsoever to prove right. that Juan Cabrillo was born in Portugal. And the same but, thing for for Spain. Well, right. um, I think I, it, it dawned on me. I, I did the research and I and I found that isn't it interesting that a man named Pedro Cabral discovered, so to speak, Brazil around the time Juan Cabrillo would have been born? 
I argue that Juan Cabrillo was indeed Portuguese, of Portuguese birth, but he was born in Brazil, and this is why there is no record, no document of his birth. Hmm. That and makes sense. But don't, but don't forget that, that the... I'm sorry. I was, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say the Portuguese have a connection to the, to the Knights Templar, too. Oh, yes, indeed they do, because King Dennis of Portugal, King Dennis I, when the Knights Templar were first arrested and being persecuted, and the, the French king and the in cahoots with the Vatican told all of Europe, the Catholic nations, uh, okay, arrest all your Templars and, and uh, you know, right. do what we're doing. Uh, Portugal was one of the nations that said, nah, we're not going to do that. And King Dennis yeah. said, okay, Knights yeah. Templar, you're, you're hereby disbanded in Portugal, but now I'm going to found the Order of Christ, and all of you right. Templars will be members of the Order of Christ. Now, here's an but interesting don't thing. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Pedro Cabral, the man who discovered Brazil, was a knight right. in the Order of Christ. Right. And the book, the book goes into why because of that. I, I argue that Pedro Cabral was very probably Juan Cabrillo's father. And the book explains how Cabrillo derived his name Cabrillo from Cabral and why. It goes into the linguistics of that. And right. why that this would have been, you know, he would have been the bastard child of a, you know, a man who, you know, with a great reputation, all this stuff. And, right. uh, you know, that's why he waited until he was 37 or 38 years old before he, he used the name Cabrillo publicly. And by that time, he had established a name for himself, built his own reputation, was very respected as Hidalgo, which means knight. Um, in fact, I argue he was Hidalgo de Sangre, which is Knight of the Blood, which mm-hmm. usually, you know, which meant your father, your grandfather, and on back. And, and there was probably a Templar in there. Right. Um, what, 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 and, you know, people don't understand. People don't really know that, for instance, that the Portuguese set the Knights Templar up with ships so that they could prey on the Catholics. And that their standard was the very first skull and crossbones. Mm-hmm. That's well, yeah, where the whole they, pirate flag comes from. When they were persecuted, their fleet yeah. disappeared from uh, La Rochelle, and, <laughs> and that's what they uh, fled to uh, Scotland in, uh, mostly. And yeah. uh, you're right; that was the beginning of the tradition. Uh, a lot of people don't know that the the piracy of the Atlantic Ocean and the Spanish Main and all that has its roots in the Templar ships uh, attacking ships of the Catholic nations. They would only attack the ships of the Catholic nations. They would only attack basically mainly the the Spanish and the Italians. Those were their favorite targets. uh, Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's very interesting because they, they could have had an entire fleet at their disposal to come to the world and do whatever they... Yeah. Very cool. And, of course, they uh, uh, the book goes into how and why um, they would have had the portalons and the charts to uh, the New World. Um, if you, you know, Joseph Farrell's done some really interesting writing on this recently. Um, in his book, uh, Thrice Great Hermes and the, the Janus Age, um, I hope I'm not getting that title wrong. I don't have it sitting in front of me anyway. One of his most recent books, if not the most recent, um, explains how the Templar Association with the the bankers of Venice and all that interesting stuff. Um, how you know it explains 
how they got their hands during the Crusades and, and, and through Venice um, on these secret charts and such. And basically presents you know the great argument for the New World, of, of course, having been known to certain you know uh, individuals of power in Europe right. before 1492, and um, and Columbus included, by the way, um, which others have written about that, presented that, and um, you know they would have been. I argue in my book that uh, the Prince Henry Sinclair voyage did indeed take place, and uh, I made some interesting discoveries there. And that that would have established the Templars in the Americas, um, you know, a hundred years before Columbus. And yeah. by the time they got their hands on Joan's sword, they would have just, you know, brought it over to so the outpost. So, you, so you're pretty sure that that it ended up in California and it didn't end up in the bottom of a pit in Oak, at, Oak, at Oak Island. Ah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, my book goes in, my book goes into, uh, the book goes into why I argue that Henry Sinclair indeed made, um, a, a landfall and a, and a claim of possession on Oak Island. And it has to do with the oak trees that are there and why they're there and how that ties into what's called Udall Law back in Northern Europe and how you claim possession of land, how, how people in Great Britain, you know, claim possession of land, and that Sinclair used the planting of the oak trees as his claim of possession. Now, ironically, I do not think that the money pit had anything to do with Henry Sinclair. Hmm. In my research, I came to that conclusion that the pit itself, nothing to do with Templars or Henry Sinclair, but Oak Island, yes. Yeah, um, I don't think that the the money pit was ever a Templar vault, and the book explains why. And guess what, folks? It has to do with uh, Tellurik current. Um, yeah. So uh, get, be prepared for that. Um, the vaults moved um, across North America from the northeast down the the southeast coast and through the south. Um, I the book goes into that. Uh, I think DeSoto, Hernan DeSoto, was uh, looking for Templar vaults when he was in Alabama and uh, mm-hmm. the, the southeast. It uh, it goes into where I think the vaults would have been in in through Texas and then through Arizona and then of course in California. And by the way, I no, I don't think the sword is in California anymore. I think it's been long moved. From California, if if I were to guess now, it's somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, on on an island, you know, or something. Right. But um, very interesting. And so, um, it it was funny. You mentioned a minute ago uh, Joseph Farrell, and to kind of switch gears a little bit from your fiction, from your nonfiction to your fiction, in the House of Ka, there's a, a. there's a uh, a distinguished professor named Farrell who meets an <laughs> untimely end. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You know, Joseph hasn't read that yet. <laughs> oh, he will now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just I'm just wondering I'm just wondering if there's ever going to be a a Mod or a Schwartz or any of us are going to meet a, uh, an untimely nasty. You guys better end. watch out. 
<laughs> I usually reserve. I reserve. Here's what I, I do. I actually reserved uh, a few times. I've uh, I've done away with people I don't care for in in print, but I change their name around, you know. And uh, if you know what to look for, you'll you'll see it. But uh, you know that type of thing. But or or I or I mock somebody in some way, but they'll they'll never really know it. Not See, that's the key. Is the, the ones yeah. you don't like, yeah, I do the same thing. You 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 tweak the name around, or you you use some yeah. other name. But the people I like, who I get along with, their names might very well show up uh, in my work. <laughs> so it all yeah, it all depends if you're convenient at the time, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, go ahead, Tim. Well, no, I was just you know uh, listen listening to all this. Um, I'm just curious why um, why North America, you know, would be the choice to uh, to take the sword. Uh, you know, other than the fact that you know, I mean, it's it's basically big and and and, and unexplored. Uh, but I mean, it you know, was, what uh, what do you think the reasons were? It was big. It was unknown to uh, <laughs> most people in Europe. Um, you know, at at the time, it was the you know, North and South America were the, it, it was the, the secret it was, world. It was, it was, it was a know. new world. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here, here's another thing that people don't think about, I, I guess. This is how I, I look at uh, the United States in particular. Right. I, I think that when you go back, and of course everybody's got all their silly conspiracy theories about Freemasons and stuff, they have no idea <laughs> that Freemasons are actually the descendants of the Knights Templar who were persecuted and, and all this stuff. But the, but the thing is that the United States itself, in my estimation, is a great Knights Templar experiment. Hmm. We're going to create a society, these guys said, that reflects our ideals and our teachings. And so if they'd be coming over here for a while, you know, getting the lay of the land, um, uh, making uh, um, inroads with some of the, the the native tribes because they did. For instance, the Iroquois, um, who we we got a lot of our stuff for from for our uh, Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Some of those ideas came directly from the Iroquois, but they are also oh, yes. ideas that are present in Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. So they found sort of a kindred spirit there, you know. And they were you know they were members of the Iroquois nation. Who were present, I believe, at the signing of some of those documents. So, you know, I, I kind of see it as we don't realize the hidden hands that have guided us for so long, and that's why in the early part of America's history there was sort of this enmity and distrust of anything Catholic. You know, for the longest time, um, you know, this was sure. a staunchly Protestant nation, and it was. Oh yes, the, uh, the the yeah. the colonists, the colonists who founded Maryland. I believe because Maryland at the time was uh, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong it was the Catholic colony right yeah it was the only one it, it was, was all their one. haven I think yes and, and and the thing is that that I, I see this as going directly to the Knights Templars influence or or you know they became the Freemasons so the Freemasons are like this is our place nobody's going to tell us who to worship nobody's going to tell us. That they're their that they're our king or our uh, our sovereign, you know, mandated. And right there, God. Mike. You know, Mike. Right yeah. there, right there. When you go telling the world that nobody's going to tell you what church to go to and that you're going to bend no knee to any king, yeah. you've pissed right. off 
all the powers that be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Walter, even to this day, and some of those powers that be have changed around their their trappings, but they're still there. But but yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what was going on. So yeah, these guys had their secret hideaways, their secret uh, uh, escape routes, and and places to go for refuge. And some of them were over here probably long before anybody even realized that's what was going on. Um, mm, because sure. we know, you, you know, that, that Europeans were coming here anyway for thousands of years. So. Oh, uh, you know, the, the East Indians were coming here, the Chinese, um, uh, the Egyptians had, uh, you know, at least yeah. at the very least, um, uh, participated in trade with South America. You know, the Pacific the Islanders. Yeah, the Phoenicians, the, the Welsh, I mean, it, just about everybody. It, the, the thing about the Phoenicians is that the Phoenicians have strong ties to the British Isles. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they mine their tin in the Britain, mm-hmm. and then they would come over here for the copper that they needed to put the two things together to make the bronze. And they kept all that stuff secret. Those were secret routes. But you can right. bet if they were if they were going to Britain and they had good relations with the Brits, the Brit the Britani, the Britanni or whatever Celtic tribes that they were dealing with, they probably took some of those guys with them to the New World. I mean, the knowledge of the New World probably went all, all the way back to the Phoenicians grabbing some Celtic sailors and saying, "Hey, let's go let's go dig up some copper. We're going to show you guys how to make bronze." Right. You know. So uh, it's just a thought, anyway. <laughs> good, good thought. Yeah, but you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's it. I, I think that there's just so much to this, to all this stuff. It's it's amazing. Well, uh, you you made an interesting comment uh, about you don't think that uh, the sword is is in California any longer that it's been long long since moved. I mean, is is this a process that's that's still continuing? I mean, is there still a secret group out there that? Uh, that that's responsible for uh, you know uh, keeping this uh, on the move, or do you think it's hit a final resting spot and that's it for now? Um, you know, I I wouldn't know. I it could still be um, continued to be moved um, for you know the very reason that they just don't want it to be found. Um, it could be that they finally found a great spot to, uh, you know, keep it hidden, and there it sits, you know, and there it will will continue to to sit. But, uh, you know, it, it's your guess is as good as mine. Now, i <laughs> I think I know, I think I know where it was after I specifically located inside um, Mount Rubido in Riverside, California. In my book, and I think I know where it was after that. I'm not going to reveal that because it's private property. I was given permission by the owners of the property um, some years ago to uh, investigate whatever I wanted there. In fact, to look for something, that they, a cave that they believed was on their property that um, you know had the entrance to it and the location of it had been lost to the, to the, to the ones alive now. And wow. they gave me permission to go find that on their property. And I, I haven't finished my investigations there, but um, it is private property. It's it's secluded. And um, so, therefore, you know, I, I won't reveal that. But I, it's not there anymore, I don't think. I think it was, of course, moved. I, my theory is that Juan Cabrillo was selected by the Knights Templar to um, 
to be the custodian of the sword. Um, and, and he probably, I propose a scenario where he came to the Inland Empire and he either stayed here as custodian of the sword here at what is now Mount Rubidoux for however long. And then he's the one who then, you know, was the courier, so to speak, to carry it to this next location. And for all I know, he, he lived the rest of his days there and died there. And the next guy, whoever that was, carried yeah. it from that location you know, on to the next one and the next one. Um, well, you know, you, you, know, you see a movie like a, a movie like National Treasure, uh-huh. where you have this huge treasure trove. You know, you, you feel like you know Smaug the Dragon should be down there guarding this huge treasure <laughs> trove of Templar treasure. I, I always thought that it was more like what you're talking about. They, they might have a, I'm sure they do. They have a select uh, number of, of of relics that they think are valuable and powerful. But they don't put them all in one location. They move them around constantly, sure. separate from each other, because yeah. to do otherwise would just be foolish. I mean, you're just asking. Yeah, me, having yeah. having them all you in know. one place. Would, you yeah, know, not, you don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Right. I was uh, reading so I a think, detective. Uh, I've been reading a detective novel, um, uh, The Low End of Nowhere. And in that, it talks about a drug dealer who, um, you know, would put his uh, go-away money, he called it, in an easy-to-find place in his apartment. So, And it was just enough to make a, you know, knuckle-headed burglar think that he'd found the, the, the hidden cash and, and, you know, to just go away when the guy actually had more money hidden elsewhere. And it's the same the same thing. I mean, you, you just you, – in fact, you might put a treasure chest of emeralds, rubies, and diamonds – to make some knucklehead think he'd found the treasure when the real treasure, you know, was deeper in or somewhere else. And I, right. you know, several, the same. several places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, and, and by the way, you know, what, what's treasure to these guys might not appear so valuable at times to other people if they were. Right. To find it. Absolutely. Well, well, think about it, you know, just, just take, what I just said. Oh, and by the way, the guy who did the um, really great research on the uh, sword of Joan of Arc is his name is Lance Bernard. Um, you can look up his uh, work; um, it's it's on the web. A really good article on this, and um, Lance Bernard's the guy that did just fantastic research on the sword and the possibilities surrounding its its physical construction and its association with Charles Martel. But um, you know, just imagine you're talking about a sword. Think about it. If you had the real Excalibur as it's described, why you could get all the diamonds, rubies, and emeralds you could ever want, all the gold you could ever want because you have that sword. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so yeah, the sword would actually be more valuable than all the gold in Fort Knox to these guys. <laughs> Very interesting. Now, Lance Bernard's out there in California, isn't he? I don't know. He's in. It says he's, I just looked it up. He's in Los Gatos. That's not that far from you. Well, that's isn't that cool. interesting? Wow. I wow. Okay, that's an interesting little synchronicity going on there that we won't get into well, now. I was, well, I was well, just was in Los Gatos. Oh, really? Well, I was going to say since I Los was Gatos. Just, I was just in Los Gatos in. Uh, uh, late June, after having accompanied right. Joseph Farrell to the uh, hidden 
the, the Breakaway Civilization and Secret Space Program Conference, and I was right. very specifically investigating a very special carousel. <laughs> you know my research with uh, the carousel uh, um, uh, in Los Gatos. And that's my gosh. And because I, I another thing is that in Spanish, Los Gatos means the cats. And yes. what's the first? What's the first? Uh, what's the first part of Saint Catherine's name? <laughs> yeah, C A T. There you go. I, I'm I'm going to bring you around, Mike. You're going to see that. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think wild. there's been a, there, there's been a lot of sleight of hand, and here there be dragons where Hecate is concerned. And thanks well, I, to our, look, I, I also know people though who've had actual uh, negative experiences with an entity calling itself that, and I absolutely know that they're telling me the truth. So, you know, it's one of those things where, again, like I say, people. Things, people, entities—they lie, they deceive, and you know who's who's really who. You know, um, so just it's a thought. Like anyway. It's like electricity; yeah. it can be wielded for great positive use. It can be deadly when mishandled. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and you, you and I both know our, our friends who like to play dabble in certain things often tend to uh, mishandle things don't they yeah it, or, yes or misrepresent them also so <laughs> yeah, yeah, True. yeah yeah we, we've even had a few of those on the show so <laughs> yeah but anyway um oh one or two <laughs> <laughs> wow this is pretty wild so do you think you might write any fiction uh that has to do with this material well um part of it kind of is already and i will see you in time yeah. And uh, you, you never know. Uh, right now, what I'm focusing on are a series of pulp novels, because after after seven years of the Empire of the Wheel investigation and research and all the in, in secret missions and the Latitude 33 book and all the things that came with that that I haven't even, never discussed publicly and it's not in the books. Um, I, it quite frankly, I, I've earned a break from that milieu, and so for the next year, I'm getting back into my fiction and i'm having a lot of fun doing it um specifically writing these pulp novels now of course the nature of the what i write and what i'm interested in you know is going to reflect certain things as it fits in the stories but these first several that i'm writing as i stated before um these are things these several of these are already in rough draft form Mm -hmm. that i've written since 2005 and um, I'm basically going back and writing the final drafts, and right. uh, th- th- that's the fun part, as you know, Mike, being, being yeah. a writer yourself of well, fiction. Well, I, well you know, I, we, talked about this before, we talked about this before you came on the show. Um, mm-hmm. I, I find that writing fiction takes more concentration and leave me alone time than anything does. Anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you, you have to um, you particularly have to immerse you yourself. Have, yeah. Particularly when you're writing the rough drafts, because that's the real, that's when you're creating it. When you go right. to do the final draft, the creation's done, and you're just doing the trimming and the grooming and, and having fun yep. by making it more colorful and, and textured. And, and, and that's, that's where I'm at with, there's about seven or eight of these things that I've already got yep. rough drafted. And well, I'm know, just having a blast. You're, uh, the introduction that you wrote, the forward that you wrote for, for Pulp Wins is now back in print. That's right. That's right. 
Yeah, yeah. Looking forward and to that. I've been looking forward to doing the stories. Yeah, a lot of those stories were in your magazine. And we're, it's about time for us to go to break, I think. So yes, I think I'd like yes. to talk to you about that when we come back about uh, Lost Continent Library and Lost Continent Library Magazine and, and what I'd your plans to. are. Absolutely. Right, well, sounds good. Well, listen, everybody out there, just uh, stay tuned, and we'll be right back with Walter Bosley and more of his interesting insights right here on The Outer Edge. If you want to get a thrill, if you want to see the sights, jump right in. I got an unidentified flying object, yeah. Let's go for a spin. We're going UFO. We're trying salts of flying. We glide across the skies. Nobody will believe their eyes. Just when they think they've seen us, we zoom away to Venus. One moment we're in Mexico, like that we're over Idaho. Just tell me where you want to go in my UFO. We're going UFO in. We're trying salt supplying. We'll glide across the skies. Nobody will believe their eyes. When they think they've seen us, we'll zoom away to Venus. One moment we're in Mexico, like that we're over Idaho. Just tell me where you want to go in my UFO. We're going UFO in. will believe their eyes Just when they think they've seen us We'll zoom away to Venus One moment we're in Mexico Like that we're over Idaho Just tell me where you wanna go In my UFO We're going UFO We're trying salt supplies We'll try to cross the skies Nobody will believe their eyes All systems are functional being tied down to your computer but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go TalkStream live introduces our first ever iphone application the talk shows you follow now follow you and your iphone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the internet listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day seven days a week mobile talk radio from TalkStream live now available in the itunes app store 
Now you can share the topics that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk radio is topic-driven talk radio. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com. 4,734 UFO sightings in 2007. Abductions by aliens or unknown species reported by American and British citizens. And hundreds more unreported in 2007. Suppressed information about collisions with passenger aircraft and UFOs that has been kept from public knowledge for years. And only one trusted source on information from some of the top UFO researchers in the world. Exclusive information that cannot be found anywhere else on the planet. Trusted connected accurate the ufostore.com expand your personal library with fast shipping and instant downloadable information from the largest selection of ufo products on the internet by going to the ufostore.com or call on the 24-hour seven-day-a-week order line at 541-523-2630 the truth is out there and the ufostore.com has it I'm Tim Swartz, and tonight we're talking with uh, Walter Bosley. So, Walter, uh, before we left on our break here, oh, uh, let me remind everybody, if you want to call and ask a question uh, to us or Walter, just give us, uh, uh, pick up your phone and uh, uh, push them little buttons to 786 786- <laughs> Two four five eight one two seven. I'll say that again. Seven eight six two four five eight one two seven. We want to hear from you. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you've got some questions, so don't be shy. Give us a call. So now, uh, before we left on our break, we were uh, talking about um, your uh, going back to uh, to writing fiction. And I know that yes. uh, uh, Mike and I were talking about, uh, you know, before, before we brought you on about, you know, I mean, we, you know, we both love fiction, but it's, it's, man, it's, to me, it's, uh, Mike's had more experience than I have. I just, I find fiction just rather daunting, you know. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's not that daunting. But let me say, Tim, if you like movies, <laughs> um, which I do. You should, yeah. You should be able to. You would have no problem writing short stories or even, you know, novels. 
um, right. if, if you like movies. So uh, I, I'll tell you guys, seriously, that my, my thing that I tried years ago that I found works for me, if I can get the isolation and the time to sit down and not be bothered so I can concentrate, the best way to write fiction is to write it in such a way, it's, first of all, you don't, don't overly um, stress about what you're writing. But right. write something. Th- think about think when you sit down. You think of it like this: I'm going to write something that I would like to read. I'm going yes. to write something that, that would entertain me, that I would like to read, if I weren't the one writing it. Right out there somewhere, there's some guy just like me who likes to read this type of stuff. I'm going to write something for somebody like that. If you think right. of it like that, it makes it a lot easier to write it. Absolutely, absolutely, it does. It uh, write for yourself first. The audience, um, you, you know, it'll find an audience. The other thing you got to do is put out of your head that you're going to get, you know, rich off one book or overnight. Yeah. It's just, it's, <laughs> yeah. Writing yeah. fiction, writing fiction, even writing nonfiction, writing anything, yeah, but writing yeah. fiction especially is you've got to do it because you enjoy it. Um, yeah. Because believe me, Michael, tell you, there ain't no money in it yet for us. We're doing it, you know. <laughs> in fact, you know, it's like. You, you sit here and you wonder. I mean, it's as if there are select people who aren't necessarily selected for the the level of talent that they have. Who just it, they have incredible success because they get the right team of people behind them, the right marketing people, the right people say this is the guy, this is the girl, you know, that kind of thing, and and they just you know, and, and they just. They just get it, man. They just get all the breaks. Yeah. But then, but then you have somebody them, that, you know, yeah. Success. But you have, but you have other guys that are like, to me, you're like just writers of incredible caliber, beyond anything that these super popular writers could ever dream of doing. And they just put, they just, they push away at it. They push at it. They push at it. They push at it for years and years and decades and decades. And they keep turning stuff out. And they build that loyal following. And they won't ever have that the the mass appeal of some of the other guys, one of whom we mentioned earlier in the show, actually. Uh, maybe even more than one. But I'm talking about guys like Jack Vance, okay, who is just like, to me, in my opinion, Jack Vance is probably the greatest American writer, bar none. Um, and he writes science fiction and fantasy. And, but he won't ever have the accolades of a Stephen King or the, uh, the we- he never had the wealth, that's for sure, during his lifetime. So, you know, Obviously, he wrote because he wanted to be a writer. He wanted to write. He wanted to, to and and he wrote things that are just so unique that, uh, you know, I think that his books will literally live forever. Well, that's the, that's the thing about a, a Jack Vance is you know a hundred years from now, maybe two hundred years from now, they'll you know likely be more talking about his works than. Yeah. Um, then even I know people are going to scoff. Then even you know certainly a J.K. Rowling, you know, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. immensely popular and such. But folks, the way literature works, a um, hundred years from now, Harry Potter might just be a blip mention in you know some literature professor who happens to be a scholar and know about it. You know, oh this uh, this author Rowling, you know, her books were immensely popular, you know, in yeah, the, exactly. whatever. And uh, by then they won't even be known. I mean that's possible. Uh, well, I'll, I'll give you an example, okay? Here, here's an example. Dracula by Bram Stoker will live forever. Yeah, ex- yep. Twilight forget it. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> 
the obvious influences, going back to Harry Potter, the obvious influences in the Potter series uh, have and or, or will outlive the Potter series itself. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, uh, I was going to say uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea mm. trilogy. Is yeah, there you go. There's another what, one. That's very much what what Potter's ripping off. Let's just put it that way. I mean, it's it's so obvious that one it's an imitation. Think, oh yeah, you know, and there was well, even a, me, a person. Of, yeah, to me, was one a woman of, that wrote it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that there was a woman that that sued Rowling some time back because she had written a book um, that came out way before Rowling's books. And it was about a young wizard with glasses and his misadventures and his hard times dealing with uh, the wizard world and the and the the mundane world. They didn't call them muggles. They called them something similar, I think. And it was it was uh, a, a, a kid named Harry Potter. And huh. it, was a, it was a moderately successful children's book. And then Rowling wrote her stuff, and a whole bunch of the exact same stuff was in her stuff, in her book. Wow. And this I hadn't heard the person. Oh yeah, yeah. You can find it. she sued. She sued Rowling, and it went on and on and on. And finally, uh, they decided, oh no, 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 Rowling didn't copy you. This was a British court, you know. Uh, no, 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 you're mistaken. No, I'm sorry. I have the book right here. It was published, you know, 20 years before. No, no, no. It doesn't matter if the character looks the same, um, has the same name, uh, has the same uh, weird <laughs> little terms in their world. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You, you, you know, yeah. this is what happens too sometimes, which is very frustrating for writers, you know, so. Yeah, but you still, you know, you got to plug away. And, and my thing is, um, you know, the people that have read House of Ka are loving it. And that just thrills me to no end. That, that encourages me. It makes me very happy that people are liking that. Like I said, I'm going to devote a year um, solidly to just working on fiction and, right. uh, you know, just keep doing this stuff. And, and, you know, as people like them, that's why I'm writing them, you know. Uh, right. Uh, and and I, I do have a lot of fun. The next one um, should be I'm getting through the final draft, and it should be out here probably in a couple of weeks. And, you know, I think uh, I think it's another good one that people are going to have a lot of fun with. So um, it's it's something I look forward to doing every day, and that's what that's what you have to do. Um, and uh, I'm at the same time. You'd mentioned the magazine earlier. I'm working on bringing back my Lost Continent Library magazine. And see, Which I need to start my... writing some fiction for that specifically. So absolutely, absolutely, and uh, that being my original so-called. Actually, that's kind of right now my, my, well, no, since Empire of the Wheel came out, that changed a little bit. But for a while there, LCO Magazine was my my tiny little claim to to fame for 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, think about this, too. I mean, we, we expended a lot of time on that magazine. And it got, what, about 10,000-plus downloads every month? It was unbelievable. It was unreal. It, it, really, it really was. But you got to understand that while our stuff is pulp fiction, we even push the envelope on that sometimes. I mean, we kind of we kind of got <laughs> out there a little bit. Some of the things we that we we put in there. So, yeah, I think I actually lost oh. friends over some of that, but I don't care. Um, I, I don't I don't know really? why. Was, you know, it was an excellent oh, yeah. magazine. 
I, Thank I, you. I, I, but, I love well, that. Here, here's yeah. the thing. Here's the thing. If you're reading Pulp Fiction, don't be a prude. Yeah. <laughs> if oh you're going to be a prude, you know, then, you need, then you need to go, you know, I don't know what you need to do, but you sure don't need to be reading Very pulp. good point, Mike, uh, because Pulp Fiction – um, and folks, for, for all of you, you know, under 40, we're not talking about the, the very fine Quentin Tarantino film. Um, we're talking about pulp fiction with a small p and a small f. Um, oh, I don't know. I, cap- it, I capitalize them. It, it was, uh, it, it was the, um, it, it was the place where when writers wanted to write edgy stuff, they would write for the pulps. That's right. And, you know, here's the thing, Mike. You got you got two ways of looking at this, okay? You can look at the Pulp Fiction. You can be the kind of guy who says, I'm just going to uh, carry the torch for the great era of Pulp Fiction, and the only thing I want to see produced is essentially pastiche. You know, I just want to right, see people exactly. make copies, one right after the other, of the great writers of 100 years ago, and we don't want to see anybody going out of those lines. Or you could... Know, pick up the torch of new pulp, which I correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe if, if I'm being arrogant here, or egotistical here, were we part of? Um, how long has that term new pulp been around? I think we kind of started that, didn't we? we I you know what? I don't like to say that. Oh, we were the guys who started this, but I I think we kind of were involved in that I think phrase. We were. That and, and and in fact, if you think about this, I mean, if you read, for instance. Stories that I've had in your magazine and in some other magazines, and then you read your pulp stuff, and you know which ones I'm talking about. We do some things that are pretty much pushing the envelope. I mean, we do things that, <laughs> yeah, we, we've done some things that uh, really raise some eyebrows. So, but you know, you can't. I want to stay true to the spirit of the pulps. And to the spirit of writers like Howard and Lovecraft and and uh, yeah. um, uh, Kuttner and Moore and, and all these great writers, but at the same time you want to do something new and original that's you. Well, you know what? That's exactly me. that's exactly what they would tell us to do. It's right. like, guys, don't 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 pastiche me. Do your own that's right. thing. Exactly. You know, take it farther. Take it farther. But yeah. you know, the only the only thing I I ever regretted. I'm not going to say regretted. Um, and I'm not going to name names, but the only thing that I that I personally didn't like, I'll put it that way, that I wasn't a fan of, let's put it that way, is I did publish a story that was kind of a zombie-ish type thing where there was a, a extremely uh, graphic representation. That, and, and it just it, that's just not my thing. Personally, I hate that in films. I don't like yeah. watching it. Uh, I don't like reading it, but it was something that... You know, I thought, well, this is what, you know, people, and after that, I never, and, and, you know, I'm going to put the, um, the editorial guidelines out there. And, uh, yeah. you know, as you know, I, I have I think a that's a good definition. idea. Well, you know, even, there's even just in, some well, stuff that's in, not going to be in the magazine. Well, well, even, in, even in sexual stuff, you know, when I write, you know, we encounters between men and women and that type of thing, mm-hmm. I find this better. People aren't dumb, especially if they're reading Paul. You don't have to spell it all out and describe everything that's going on. Oh know? no, of course not. You, or, I you, mean, you can you, use innuendo, or or you or you lead up to that point, and then you can use uh, if you're if you're actually a writer, <laughs> you can, you can <laughs> let them know what's going on without having to just describe everything for them, um, right. and and do it and do it well. And it's the same thing with 
with uh, uh, scary stuff and, and blood and gore mm-hmm. and violence. You can, you know, there's a certain point you go to. You know, when you have a thing where you're writing and you write about some guy who's in the middle of a big melee battle and the swords are flying and blood is spurting and, and you know, throats are being ripped asunder and all this kind of stuff, that's, and that's how you say it. But you don't have to get in there and say, you know, there were glistening piles of guts everywhere. And, right, exactly. So, yeah, and just go into these great details about all these little – to me, that's just like – that's honestly, that's just like Tolkien writing about every damn variety of weed in Middle Earth. Okay, oh. it, it's no different. Except yeah. instead of Tolkien's weeds and flowers, it's going to be uh, let's describe this battle scene and and use as much gory language as we possibly can. The villain's spleen quivered upon the tip of his blade. Uh, what the hell? You know? Just, Their eyes were split asunder, and the goo issued forth. You know? <laughs> I like the way that Howard would do it. Howard would simply say. Split his skull to the teeth, you know. He yeah, split yeah. skull to the teeth. Well, that pretty much sums that up. You know, yeah. there's no big description of of what it looked like. Yeah, you don't need much else. The fill in the blanks, you know. I yeah. mean, it's, and it's the same thing with with sex scenes. I mean, you know, you can fill in the blanks. You don't have to have like every descriptive term, and and you know, so yeah. So I think, <laughs> well, I, I think uh, that. based on that, uh, I think you'll enjoy the. Uh, the, the next pulp one, if you liked House of Ka, which um, I, I, I had what what I what I discovered was I kind of hit my personal stride for that uh, pulp detective type of banter and and, and description. I, I wouldn't say it hit my. I, I I'm getting into that groove where I think I've gotten you know even better at that stuff. And House of Ka, I'm pretty proud of House of Ka. It's a very good example of what we're talking about. And um, the next one, the new one, um, which I'm toying with uh, revealing the title of tonight. So, you know, maybe in the next 12 minutes uh, I might do that. We'll see. All right. <laughs> hey, you know, I've always wondered, I've always wondered, guys, does uh, does no calls mean a complete lack of interest or, or are they just glued to their – their earphones. <laughs> well, I know people are. I've been I've been monitoring on Facebook and I've had a few messages. So people are listening, but I think what it is with a lot of people is that they they uh, are just listening because it's late at night, and then the downloads will come. When the podcast is up. That's when most people actually listen. It's when they. You know, your audio sound. Uh oh, Tim, you still there? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We're still we're still here. Yeah. It. Uh, um, I, I think that more people actually go yeah. and. Uh, and get us uh, in the oh, it's, archives. It's the same. Yeah. It's the same yeah. with uh, you know the other ones I've been on. I, I just like to. I, that's that's my self-deprecating humor there. You know. Well, you know, it's like it's like we said before. If, if Tim and I didn't do a late night radio show, we wouldn't be up right now. We'd be asleep. So oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah, you guys. This is real late for you. <laughs> so you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna write another chapter and then play some World of Warcraft. Um, but before it's uh-huh. the time it is for you now. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's it's getting there. It's about one, almost one o'clock my time, so it's going to yeah, be almost almost, uh, almost two up my time. So yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> oh, and by the way, it, it is true that uh, um, there are some very you know we all have our thing. We all have our 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 uh, things that we sort of put in our fiction that you can see. And there's definitely some Bosley esque stuff in House of Ka. That's all I'll say. 
<laughs> uh, you know, there's a. I'm being very Mike. Let, let's see if you figure this out after you read the next one. Um, I'm being very subtle with a favorite Walter Bosley device, character yeah. device. Yes, you are. <laughs> much, much more, much more subtle than the previous. Uh, yes, uh, forays into that particular idea. Oh, and and I got to tell you, here's the thing. If people doubt, yes, it's. I get a great laugh as a writer, um, you know, using that device. And also, it it uh, it's not just a total joke. It's it's you know, it, if it works for me uh, creatively for for themes and stuff. But um, I come at that particular device from an alchemical perspective. So. A lot of times people misunderstand that. Of course, I can understand that because of the nature of the stories I write. But, um, yeah, I'm, I kind of, I'm kind of coyly, uh, I, I give little, little fun clues for those who get it, you know, great. For those who don't, you know, they go on. And in, and in this current one that I'm writing, the yeah. same kind of thing. Well, you know, yeah, I, there are things that, you know, <laughs> you, you gotta, you got to write what you got to write. That's all there is to it. Well, so. and and not every story, not every story, folks. Um, I, those who have read, uh, I will see you in time. You know, know that that famous Walter Bosley device is not in that one. And uh, some of these ones coming up. Um, in fact, I'm really excited to get to one in particular that's in rough draft. It's it's kind of like an executioner or Mac Bolan. You know, like one of those old men's action type of novels. Yeah, cool. Oh, from, yeah. From the 60s and 70s. I got one of those in the lineup, and you guys are going to love it. But, uh, the current one is another, um, it's, uh, there's not a, well, there's a detective in it, but he's kind of a supporting character. It's more of a, you know, there's mysticism and, and there's a, a professor. It's, it's very hammer-esque. It's a Ooh. fun, spooky, hammer-esque tale. Cool. And I'm going to announce the title right now. You ready? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Green. Ghost. Oh, oh, cool! Green ghost. I like that. <laughs> yep. Very cool. That's the ah, that's yeah. the title, and I'll be releasing the cover art as soon as the final draft is finished. That's what I like to do. When the final draft is done, I'll release the cover art while I'm doing some polishing and you know getting it ready for release. So look for look for that. Cool. Green ghost. Oh wow! I can't Sounds wait good. for that now. <laughs> that just that that's. <laughs> I want to read it now. Come on, get it, get it out. I want to read it. It's, so I get it's it. coming soon. So, I, so there, there you have it. You know, normally we we ask what you got coming up. Well, I guess we now know. We don't have to ask yeah, that. That and of course in spring 2015, uh, May 1st is the date, the red letter date. I'm shooting for the release of uh, the return of Lost Continent Library magazine. Okay, I'm, I'm, well, ex- I'm excited about that. This time, are you going to sell it? Because you should at least be able to charge a couple bucks for it. You, you know, Mike, uh, and and you, we had discussed this, and so much work goes into producing one People of these. Have no idea. One issue. Yeah. They yeah. they really don't. And um, so, yeah, it's going to be just a, a nominal 99 cents, folks. But, uh, you know, I'm, it'll I'm be gonna, worth it. Believe me, oh, it'll it, be it worth definitely it. will be worth it. it it's going to have all the familiar features that people loved and right. a, a little bit, uh, to, you know, um, stepped up. As when you look, Walter, when you look at how much material 
I mean, the first LCL magazine started out kind of small, but by the time mm-hmm. it was rolling, those those magazines were huge. They were uh, at least a hundred pages each one, right? Or yeah, more? yeah, at oh, least. yeah, yeah. And even even the ads and all the other graphics in it were really, really, you know, really good. So, and I must say that you know, I, I, I'm, I'm being humble in terms of my own contribution there. But <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but anyway, I mean, they, they were they were really good, well well put together magazines. And so, you know, if, if they're going to be anything like that, people will be getting one hell of a deal for a couple of bucks. I mean, what well, ninety nine cents? cents? Yeah, that's oh my gosh, that's a, you know that yeah. is that's yeah, just, that's almost uh, giving it away. It is. That's great. So, so a Kindle? Are you talking about Kindle or other or other formats? Well, well, yeah, the the uh, the well, um. Yeah, the digital format's going to be 99 cents. Of course, there's, I am finally, I'd always want to do this with the first one, but I will, once we get the digital one released, um, uh, when I create the mag, the digital magazine, I'm going to be doing it as if I'm creating it for print to begin with, so that right. hopefully it will be a very fast, uh, turnaround. You know, it'll be out there digital for maybe a week or two, and right. then, Printed edition, the printed version will be available. Now that one, you know, I have to cover the cost of the print on demand, and right. I'm still going to keep the personal profit as low as possible, right. um, to to maybe one or two dollars. Right. You know? um, exactly. So it might be it might be you know around seven bucks to get the printed one, but I know that the people who would really like it, um, they'll they'll find that to be a very fair price and. Well, I'll definitely try to get some stuff ready for it, and, and uh, I'm going to tr- get on Tim here and see if he can. Said I'm going to nag him, get him to, to <laughs> lock himself in his room and write some fiction. Well, I'm going to I'm going to bring back the fun stuff like articles on uh, you know uh, it, it, it adventure classic films and and writers and and artists and well, also I, I the beer you, review. The beer cool- review is my personal favorite. Yeah, exactly. That was that was cool. You had a really great uh, grog and brew. Is that what it was called? Yeah, grog and brew. I'd do beer, wine, yeah. or some type of spirit. Remember, it always had to have some type of adventure theme. Either it was brewed right. or made in some exotic corner of the world, or just simply the the name of the product and the label right. reflected the adventure theme. That's right. It was a very cool feature. I, I that was one of my favorite features. And I'm thinking maybe. Uh, Something from yours truly about blades, knives, swords. That'd be a good one. That'd be excellent. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Actual survival type stuff. You know, stuff that you could use in the field. Those types of things. I mean, we can really we'll, get the we'll, we get the we'll adventurers, talk- adventurers blades or something. You know, something. We'll, we'll be little- talking here soon, Mike, about yeah. the specific features, the new things, and what's going to come back. And and you know, we're going to do one of these. And we're gonna, you know, I'm gonna do one of these, slam bang it, and uh, we'll see if there's enough interest. We'll do another one. Oh, we'll get uh, it going. We'll get it going. We'll do a, well, what, what made What made you decide to uh, come back and do it again anyway? Oh well, I'd had people ask me, um, "Hey, you ever gonna do the magazine again? You ever gonna do the magazine again?" And um, it's it's really interesting, Tim, uh, coming to the end of this. I'm going to call it a cycle because it really is a period of seven years, which my life was a whirlwind investigating Empire of the Wheel and the things related. And I feel like I've come to an end of a cycle. And, you know, I'm kind of beginning a new cycle. And I realized, wow, 
I, I really want to write fiction again. I mean, really jump into it. And it just struck me. It's like, and wow, I also want to do that darn magazine again. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that just, I, I just want to, you know, I, I just want to get that out there again. I, I want, I, I started Lost Connet Library. I was inspired to, um, create the business, the label when I was in Khartoum. Sudan in North Africa on my former job in my past life there in 2002 September and um, I came up with the name I came up with the concept originally that was just going to be a magazine and then I said no I'm going to get bold it's going to be a, a publishing label so then by the time I got home in early October of 2002 12 years ago about this time um, I got my business license I printed up some cards and I said Lost Connet Library is in business. And I had done, you know, a few book titles, but in the back of my mind was the idea that originally I'd always wanted to do a magazine. So in uh, December of 2007, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And the first two weeks of January 08, I, I did this kind of by myself. I think I sprung it on Mike. I did uh, the, the premiere issue. And then I quickly turned around and did issue number two. And I released those within, I think, 10 days of each other on Mike's website. Yeah. And Mike came back and said, oh, boy, <laughs> what you have done. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean, Mike? And he says, first of all, we're getting thousands of downloads because it was free then. And he said, also, there's people in the genre, the field that want to know who the heck you are. <laughs> and uh, I got interviewed a couple of times because – the quality, I guess, and the nature of how I did the magazine kind of changed how those particular things are done. Yeah, uh, yeah, it definitely was groundbreaking. Nobody had done anything like it before. So, and it was something that you know, um, Mike and I whipped up ourselves every month. I every mean, month. <laughs> In addition to working full time and freelancing and everything yeah. else, every month. Oh, and, and I had. I had more work then. The, Mike, the reason I'm getting so much fiction done now is the, the private eye trade out here is in the toilet. So, Well, dude, every, every trade is in the toilet right now. So, yeah, we all need to get busy writing, I think. But another thing is that uh, we, we did another magazine for one issue, and that was called Phantom Stream. Phantom Stream. Yes, you're, and, you know, I still get people downloading the free digital copy of that off of Lulu. Really? Huh. Well, you know, Walter Bosley, oh, not Walter Bosley, uh, sorry, Walter, um, Brad Steiger had a piece in there, too. With, uh, yes, he know, did. You, that were, I had one in there, and he did, and who else was it? Somebody else that was... Uh, oh, yeah, that was Phantom Stream, I'll tell you. That's a good concept, Mike, and let's get Lost Connet Library launched and see what the response there, and maybe we'll do another Phantom Stream. Yeah, that awesome. was a cool, cool idea. And we'll see. But, the uh, other one that I wanted to do was um, Steam Magazine when LCL Mag kind of petered out there. Um, I wanted yeah. to do a steampunk-themed classic adventure thing, and, and there's going to yeah. be some elements of the Steam concept in the new Lost Continent Library. I, I think we should. I think we should do that. Do it that way because you know the uh, it really is sort of a sort of a pulp thing, but steampunk to me has kind of run out of steam. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it, it needs some help. It, it definitely is kind of like it, I, so much of it was kind of cool, but it, it seems like it's overdone. It's it's so contrived now that it's, you know, you, you know. can I throw my two cents in about what I think 
happened with steampunk. And I know that all the steampunk fans and aficionados out there are just going to hate me. Like, oh, well. just like the guy who hates me for the Lovecraft thing. Um, but I think when it ventured too far into, and, and don't, don't get hurt here, Mike, when I say fantasy. Yeah. Uh, but you know what I mean. You, you know what I mean. It, well, you know, I don't really write fantasy anyway. I'm more, I write, I'll write, you write uh, sword, sword and, and sorcery and, uh, yeah. and action, action adventure and, and all kinds of stuff. I don't really do any you know, actual fantasy stuff. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I guess you could call any fiction is fantasy to some extent, but still. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I, here's what I saw with, with steampunk. It seemed like it just became totally obsessively ridiculous for some people. I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. They're going to hate me too. They'll hate my guts too, but, but. Well, I think there's some you know, great steampunk stuff out there's there. There's some good but, stuff. There's some good yeah. stuff. Well, like, for instance, uh, um, the way they incorporated steampunk concepts into the Hellboy uh, movies, that was cool. But they didn't overdo it, you know. I mean. Right, right. Well, and, and, and that's what I'm talking about because I'll, I'll tell you the truth, Mike. I personally feel this way still. The thing that's going to save classic adventure that, I, that we love so much yeah. is going to be the, the, a steampunk element. I really, I think steampunk is one of the most solid literary creations of when our it, times. When it's done, uh, the last when it's not years, overdone. I should say. Well, when you look at for well, instance, well, anything the, overdone. Well, look at anything. look at the, the Sherlock Holmes films that uh, Robert Downey Jr. And, and Jude Law made. Those two films had steampunk elements in them, but they were believable because okay, it, it's just like with sword and sorcery. Okay, sword and sorcery is different from fantasy because fantasy is like magic, magic everywhere, magic, magic here, magic, magic there. You know, sword and sorcery, magic is in very small quantities, sometimes barely perceptible. Yeah, and that's why it's more effective because it's like it, there's a hor- there's a certain horrifying effect to it when it shows up. That it it's that used it, sparingly, but effective. Yes, it's used sparingly, and most of the world's just a gritty realistic environment even if it's got right. swords and monsters or whatever or creatures or or you know guys fighting or whatever it is that's why well, it's, I, I, it's, a, it's a more a more realistic thing but with steampunk you know it's, it's the same thing don't overuse the steampunk you know it should be there to accent what you're doing not to completely take yeah. over that's 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 the way i look at it but I mean, guys you know, i think anything can be overdone and it can um, be you know, and and I I will still say that I think it, it for me it's it's the most exciting of the uh, uh, new genre creations or whatever it is I'm trying to say um, of the yeah. last you know several years yeah, for, yeah, me, for me personally it, it can be it can be yeah <laughs> but that's why I want to incorporate some of the you know that theme and yeah. those elements into the Lost Connet Library magazine right. because right. I think we have an audience there I think they'll yeah. like. We do, and uh, I think our other our original audience will like how yeah. we bring steampunk into right. what we do. Uh, well, I, I would love to win those people over. I, I really would. I think we will. And and Walter, listen, tell people real quick where they can see your stuff because we have gone over. <laughs> in oh, time. Gosh, I'm sorry. We have gone um, over you, in gosh, time. You, you can. You can find the books at, on Kindle and Amazon.com. Remember, for folks who don't have a Kindle device, that Amazon gives the Kindle application for, away for free. Um, you can find uh, my nonfiction uh, mostly at, uh, at Amazon also and also at Lulu.com. You can go to lostcontinentlibrary.blogspot.com. 
for updates and maybe some you know stuff in the past if you want to catch up. Um, but uh, right now, I primarily publish the fiction and nonfiction on uh, Kindle at Amazon. So I and really appreciate got, you guys having me on. And we got links to all uh, to your sites on the the show description page. So if anybody wants to see them, that's all they have to do. Well, thanks a lot for being on tonight, man. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I, I really do appreciate the uh, the time and the focus. Sure, no problem. Great. Well, uh, thank you, uh, everyone out in the audience, for listening. This is Tim Swartz with Mike Mott and our guest tonight, Walter Bosley. You've been listening to The Outer Edge. Be sure to join us again this time next week for another fascinating guest. So for all of us, good night and have a great tomorrow. Be careful of what you say Be careful in every way Be careful of what you do Big Brother is watching you Be circumspect and discreet Stay light on your mental feet One slip and you know you're through Big Brother is watching you Conform with all directives Remember obedience page And when you watch that TV screen Remember it works both ways You'll disappear in a wink Unless you can double think You'll vanish into the blue Big Brother is watching you.